Please be seated. Good morning, Emmanuel. So good to be with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Will Eastham, and I'm uh, the pastoral intern here at Emmanuel. And we're going to be continuing our sermon series this morning, uh, God Wants Us Back, 10 Images from the Book of Jeremiah. I remember my, um, my, my freshman year of college, like right around the time that the, the, the freshman 15 started to kick in, I was up late uh, procrastinating again on another paper that was due the next day. And my roommate uh, came up to me and said, hey, do you want to go for a jog? And I was scrolling on Facebook. I was like, you know what? I really need to log off Facebook and get started on this paper. I just don't have the time. I'm sorry. So he went away, went on his run, came back 45 minutes, drenched in sweat. His you know, blood's pumping. His endorphins <laughs> are flowing. Uh, and he says, how's the paper coming? And I look up from my computer, and I, I hadn't gotten off of Facebook yet. There were, uh, I remember very distinctly that there were potato chip crumbs on my stomach. <laughs> it felt almost picturesque. And just the sense of embarrassment and shame that came over me was, was unreal. And I had this, really, this realization that, man, I actually have a problem with procrastinating. And not just with my schoolwork, but I've actually tricked myself into thinking that I don't have the time to work out, I don't have the time to take care of my body. When in reality, it's just because I'm wasting the time on distractions that I hate. And I remember that, that we had this conversation and, and he, he convinced me to actually sit down with him that night to deactivate my Facebook and to put together a workout plan. And uh, we worked out together every week for the rest of that year. Psychologists, uh, they have a name for what I experienced as a freshman, even though I didn't know it then. Psychologists call what I experienced the crystallization of discontent. The crystallization of discontent. When this happens, a problem in your life becomes very clear, and you feel this, this sudden surge of dissatisfaction about it, and you feel the desire to really make a change. So the crystallization of discontent, it's like that moment when you've been scrolling on your phone uh, and you stayed up way later than you meant to, and so you finally turn your phone off and go to bed. Or it's that moment when, after another weekend of drinking too much, you finally take the whiskey out of your, your liquor cabinet and you pour it down the drain. Or it's that moment when you, you have a realization, oh my gosh, I thought that I could change this person, uh, but in reality, I'm actually enabling them. And you end the toxic relationship. Crystallization of discontent. This, this is a moment in our culture where large groups of people are becoming disillusioned. They're becoming disillusioned with the church, becoming disillusioned with the government, becoming disillusioned with the status quo. Our cultural discontent is crystallizing. People are discontent with uh, our, our cultural passivity towards injustice and towards racial violence. People are discontent with toxic leadership that they see in the church and in the world. People are, are discontent with feeling unheard or feeling judged or silenced by others. And the list could go on and on, but what's, what's your discontent this morning? What discontent 
maybe has crystallized for you in the past week. In our text this morning, we receive a really incredible glimpse of what one pastor calls God's discontent. We get a glimpse of God's discontent and how God wants to speak to us and ours. Please turn with me this morning to Jeremiah 10 in your Bibles or bulletins. We'll be starting in verse 1. Let's look together at, at three of God's discontents with the culture of Jeremiah's day. Starting in verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are a vanity. Discontent number one, God's, God's discontent with a culture of peer pressure. So the, the way of the nations, uh, when he says learn not the way of the nations, it's sort of shorthand for their entire uh, way of life for their values, their ideas, their laws, their culture. And God's, God's not calling people to, re, to retreat from the surrounding culture. But God also just doesn't want his people to uncritically accept the ways of the nations around them. God intends for his people to be what one writer calls a creative minority. I love that phrase. He intends for his people to be a creative minority. And if you look in Deuteronomy 4, as Moses is preaching to the people one of his final sermons, he says that God called Israel and gave them his law so that all the surrounding nations would look and say, what other gods are as close to their people as Israel's God is? Look at how wise, look at how creative and how just they are. We want what they have. God intended them to be a creative minority that would engage their culture and lead to the flourishing of the cultures around them. But the opposite of a, a creative minority is what another writer calls a peerarchy. A peerarchy is when we look uh, to our peers and the contemporary culture around us as the ultimate authority that guides our behavior and our values. And the Lord describes this if you look at verse 2, in the second part of verse 2, when he says, Don't be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are a vanity. So the nations around Israel often, as part of their religious and cultural practice, uh, they would look to the stars or look to natural events like comets or eclipses as ways in which the gods would communicate with them, either let them know about a coming disaster or a coming blessing. And it would have been really tempting for Israel to get swept up in the response of their neighbors, to feel the pressure of the hierarchy, to just read the stars and interpret the events around them in the same way as the surrounding nations, and to just adopt their response. Don't you, don't you feel kind of discontent yourself with the pull of the hierarchy? Doesn't it just it make you feel a little bit discontent when you get on social media or you get on uh, your Instagram or you're in a group of friends and you feel that pull of the hierarchy, right? Because regardless of the social circles that we swim in, uh, we all feel the pressure to just adopt the view of the group. Right? To just agree with what the group agrees with, to just disagree with what the group uh, disagrees with, or to just sort of stay quiet and go, hmm, you know, so that you don't lose the group's respect. 
it's really tempting to get stuck in that feedback loop of virtue signaling and shame posting, isn't it? It's so tempting because it just feels so good to dunk on whoever your Twitter's dunking on that day. It feels so good. And it feels so good when people respond uh, to your Instagram story with a hand clap emoji. Even better if they respond with the fire emoji. <laughs> it's tempting for us to just, to just join in and, and throw stones with whatever crowds gather. Or for some of us, I think the, the temptation might be to be so overwhelmed by the hierarchy and so uh, disgusted with it that we kind of just opt out altogether. And we retreat into one of our culture's silent majorities. The Lord, the Lord actually calls his people to do neither of these things. He desires us to love and to engage our neighbors, but to do it without being dictated by a culture of peer pressure. Let's look at, at discontent number two which we see starting in the, the second part of verse three. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil Neither is it in them to do good. So discontent number two, the Lord's discontent with a culture of over-promising and under-delivering. So in Jeremiah's day, the, the nations that surrounded them, they all had particular gods uh, that, they, that they made idols of, that they invited the God to uh, come and invest their presence in, and that then they offered sacrifices to. And as uh, Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart notes, Societies ran on idols. They were, they were like the oil of society. You couldn't get anything done without them. They were how women got pregnant. They were how your crops grew. They were how armies conquered and won in battle. You, you probably, if, if you lived in Jeremiah's uh, day in one of the surrounding nations, you probably couldn't imagine a healthy and happy life without idols. But the Lord, what we see him doing as he actually offers a brilliant satire that's totally deconstructing the culture around Israel. Look at, at verses three and five. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber patch and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. The Lord's saying that you know, like the, the idols of the nations might look impressive, but they're actually, when you think about it, just scraps of wood decorated with silver and gold. They're supposed to represent these, these powerful and militant gods. And yet they have to be nailed to the altar so that they won't topple over. There's this irony there that the Lord is jabbing at. The surrounding culture says that these idols demand your respect, that they demand your obedience. They promise to help you. They promise to protect you. But God says that they're, he uses another image. He says they're like scarecrows in a cucumber patch. They can't talk. They can't give advice. And they're entirely passive in the face of real trouble. Although they promise to do stuff for you, they promise to carry you, they have to be carried. You end up doing everything for them. A scarecrow can't really hurt anyone, and it can't really help anyone. All that it can do is trick naive animals. Likewise, 
idols tried to capture and control spiritual reality, but they did it like a child on the beach tries to scoop the ocean into their little bucket. They always overpromise. They always underdeliver. We're discontent today with leaders and institutions who overpromise and underdeliver, aren't we? We're discontent with politicians who overpromise on the campaign trail and then underdeliver once they get elected. We're, we're discontent with institutions that champion diversity, but then deliver tokenism. We're discontent with corporations that convince us that we can't have healthy or happy lives without their products. We've bowed down to the idol of autonomy. We've compromised our morals, we've compromised our values for political influence and for cultural cachet. We've trusted in the Western dogma of sexual freedom. But do we actually feel any more liberated or any more connected? What has overpromised and what's, what's underdelivered for you? Look at how the Lord tries to free his people in verse 5, saying, Don't be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. In other words, God's saying, like, don't get played. You don't have to cower down. don't have to grovel and offer sacrifices because they're not going to satisfy you. Finally, let's, let's look at discontent number three. It starts at, at verse nine, or sorry, verse six. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen in the hands of a goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. Discontent number three, God, God's discontent with a culture of spiritual apathy. In Jeremiah's day, Israel, for the most part, had a pretty low spiritual temperature. They had a really small vision of God that undervalued him. And Jeremiah gets indignant about this. And so he starts praying in verse six, there's none like you, O God. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, there's none like you. It's almost like Jeremiah's saying to his own people, you have access to the living God, to the God who's so great that even his name just exudes power. He's the king of the nations. Doesn't he deserve all of your affection, all of your worship and obedience? But Israel's small vision of the Lord made them grow apathetic towards him. And as they grew more and more apathetic and neglected God, their lives began to lack his presence and power more and more. Look at how Jeremiah describes this in verse 8, saying, They who worship these idols are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. It's hollow and weak. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. That's exotic materials, Tarshish at the end of the world. They're the work of the craftsmen in the hands of a goldsmith. Israel gets stuck in this vicious cycle where they, they undervalue God. 
Their lives then start to progressively lack his presence and power because they neglect him. They assume that God has then abandoned them and they turn to other gods for their prosperity and protection. Their lives become even more godless and empty. So then they diversify and up their idolatry just so that they can get a hit. It's a vicious cycle. And it's tempting for us to get stuck in a small view of God too, isn't it? A view where, you know, maybe we believe or profess that God's omniscient, right? But he isn't smart. He doesn't actually understand me. He doesn't actually know what I need or what we need as humans to flourish. Where we, we say that God is all-powerful, but he can't actually help me pay my bills. He can't actually bring an end to the social evils that we see or end structural racism. We believe that God's loving and that God's compassionate, but he, he isn't close to us. He's empathetic from a distance or sympathetic. He doesn't actually like me. He doesn't actually want time with me. When we get stuck in these small views of God, we begin to seek advice, we begin to seek power, and we begin to seek satisfaction from things that look impressive, but on, on the inside, they're actually hollow. They're like the instruction of wood. They can never satisfy our discontent. I don't know about you, but to be totally honest, I feel discontent with the level of God's presence and power in my life. I want more of the living God in my life. Don't you want your body? Don't you want your home and your neighborhood? Don't you want our church to be a place that people can come and experience the real and tangible presence and power of the living God where it's accessible? I want that. we're going to break out of a culture of spiritual apathy, we need a vision of the living God, like the vision that Jeremiah received. Look with me at verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations can't endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But what does Jeremiah see when he receives this vision? Jeremiah sees the awe of the living God. He sees the awe of the living God. He sees the living God and he's, he's brought to this place of wonder, of true worship. Unlike the pressure of the hierarchy, this isn't a, a response that's coerced. When you get into the presence of the living God like Jeremiah, there's no shame and there's no uh, peer pressure. But he, he just totally freely and uncoerced offers this proclamation. You are the true and living God. He isn't shamed into response. He's just seeing the Lord for who he is. Do you notice too that as Jeremiah gets caught up into the presence of the living God, it allows him to tell the truth without throwing stones. Jeremiah doesn't trust in his own discontent or his own indignation to bring change because he's fixed on the living God because he has a God-sized view of the world and what God can do when his people are synced up with him. He can obediently and boldly speak the truth to power while also leaving the wrath to the Lord. Look at the second part of verse 10. At his wrath, the Lord's wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the nations, 
The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and under the heavens. He can stand up to the nations and he can say what the Lord tells him to say, which is all of the fake gods that you're worshiping are going to perish. Repent. But he can do it while also standing in awe of the fact that it's the Lord's indignation and wrath that will do this and that will bring the nations to their knees. It's not Jeremiah's. Jeremiah invites us to get into the presence of the living God so that we can choose wonder over wrath like him. Look what else Jeremiah sees, starting in verse 12. The Lord who made the earth, it's he who established the world by his power and by his wisdom, by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So Jeremiah sees the wisdom of the living God. He's brought into the presence of the Lord. He sees the wisdom of the living God. Unlike the idols of the nations that are made out of totally finite, earthly things, the living God's actually the one who made finite creatures and who made the heavens and the earth. Unlike the idols, which offer their hollow instruction of wood, Yahweh is the one who established the world by his wisdom. By his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. And when Jeremiah sees this, he's overwhelmed by this vision of God's wisdom. That the Lord is not only all-knowing, but as Dallas Willard would say, he's smart and he's skilled. The stars that you and I admire, the skies that we might look at or the events that we might want to look at for wisdom, they were hung by him. The stars were hung by him. He knows the deepest and most nuanced truths about our lives and about our world. There's no one more qualified to teach us anything than the living God. And you and I have access to him, which is part of Jeremiah's wonder, part of his revelation of the wisdom of God, that the living God actually wants to counsel you and I in our ordinary daily lives, and that he's entirely trustworthy. Look at verse 13. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Unlike the idols of the nations who chronically overpromise and underdeliver, when the Lord speaks, things happen. Jeremiah sees that when God speaks, things happen. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters. He has the actual power and the bona fide goodness to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. There's no double speak with God. He is not only smart, he's effective. And he's dependable. You and I can trust him with all of the complex details of our life. Finally, let's let's look at the stunning vision that Jeremiah receives in verses 14 through 16. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there's no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he's the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Jeremiah sees the satisfaction of the living God. 
Jeremiah's vision of the living God, it crystallizes his discontent over the spiritual apathy of his culture. He sees that Israel's small vision of God actually led to a small vision of their own lives and of what God can do in the world. It left them empty and it left them senseless. Verse 14, every man is stupid and without knowledge. He sees that every one of us who undervalues the true God and creates their own idols, they actually are put to shame by these these idols and false gods they create because their idols are false and there's no breath in them. They can't give you what they don't have. There's no breath in them. There's no life in them. And so they can't actually impart life to you. When you worship them, you become like them. You become lifeless. It's like that, that fading high that always requires another hit. They're worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. But look at verse 16. This is really encouraging. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. As Jeremiah sees the satisfaction of the living God and is brought into the presence of the living God, his discontent crystallizes into desire. Jeremiah is brought into the presence of the living God and sees the satisfaction of God. His discontent crystallizes into a burning desire for the Lord. Instead of undervaluing God or being apathetic towards him or discounting what he can accomplish, he's he's utterly wooed by him. He says in verse 16, the Lord is the portion of Israel and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. There's this reciprocity there. Israel, God's people and him are bound in this deep relationship. And we see that not only are God's people discontent with the lack of God's presence they sense in their lives, but God's discontent. The Lord wants his people back. He wants to woo them. He wants to bring them back to that place where he's their portion, where he's their all and where they can see themselves as his inheritance, as his all, where he's giving all of his perfect love, he's giving all of his grace, he's giving all of his help, and they're giving him all of their love, giving all of their affection, all of their devotion and obedience, where his, his presence and his power actually are able to flourish in their life and in their world, and his purposes are able to flourish in their life and in their world. Ultimately, God's discontent over our apathy and idolatry, it took him all the way to the cross. The Son of God shed his blood to take away the shame of our idols. He shed his blood to take away all the resistance of our apathy that our spirits throw up against him, so that anyone who puts their trust in him could be a part of God's people, a part of God's family and inheritance for all of eternity. God gave his own life to be our portion, which is a crazy, beautiful, absolutely true reality. God wants us back. I want to ask you this morning, what would it take for God to get you to the place where your heart's burning cry is, I want more, Lord. I need more of you, God. I want more of you in my life. What would it take for us as a church, as a culture, to get to that place where our burning desire is we want more, We want more of you, Jesus. We want more of your presence in our life and in our world. For Israel, it it took going into exile, 
getting taken back into the wilderness where God first wooed them in their exodus out of Egypt. And Jeremiah prophesies this in, in verse 17. But what would it look like for you to prioritize God's presence this week? What might you need to, to add or to remove from your life? I think one immediate way that we can receive the presence of God is, as Father, Mar uh, Father Aaron mentioned earlier, to come partake of the Eucharist this afternoon, where Jesus is present with us. We receive his, his, his gracious presence in his, the sacrament of his body and blood. And there's more details about uh, these Eucharistic services that are going to be offered this afternoon in your bulletin. Another way uh, that, that we can prioritize God's presence, it might mean just waking up 15 minutes earlier to spend some time and begin your day with the Lord in silence and in his word. We've got to get into the presence of the living God. We've got to catch a glimpse of him. We've got to catch a glimpse of his God-sized vision for our lives and for our world. Because only he can crystallize our discontent into desire. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>